Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Stolen Goodbyes podcast with me, Karen Rice. This is being recorded remotely due to the COVID-19 restrictions. Today, I'm joined by Eileen McNamee from Dundee, who lost her mother, Anna Schuen, to COVID-19 on May 21st. She was one week short of her 92nd birthday. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you. I'd just like to start by asking you what your mother, Anna, what she was like as a person and as a mother. She was a wonderful person and a wonderful mother and a different kind of a person. Um, Our whole life was devoted to cycling. Her and my dad cycled all over Europe and they were both competitive cyclists. So they were always exceedingly fit and able. And when my mum became unwell with dementia, it was a big shock to us that this really fit, really remarkable woman could succumb to something like this that was so disabling to her so that in itself was quite difficult to cope with but she was very intelligent very supportive helped me throughout my life with everything she's just a lovely lovely person a wonderful mother what kind of places did they cycle to Oh, they went all over Scotland, they went to France, they went to Spain. Uh, They cycled up until they were in their 80s and they had a fabulous social life with other cyclists. And it was just a huge, huge part of their lives. And what's your most memorable uh, moment or moments with your mum? It's kind of divided in two because I remember her as the young, efficient, smart, uh, funny, caring mum. And then I remember her as the mum with dementia. And she was so sweet when she had dementia, so sweet. And we actually had so much fun together when she had dementia. So it's like two mums, but both of them were equally as nice. Can you describe uh, some of the fun you had? Well, we used to take some Snapchat pictures, which she didn't quite understand, but found them highly amusing. We used to take it out for coffee, for walks, and she always found beauty and wonder in everything. Um, And just because I was so comfortable in her company, we could laugh at almost anything. Even when she had a really bad dementia, she still maintained her sense of humour. And did she have a particular phrase or thing that she would do? She did have one phrase. It was, I feel my big toe twitching. If anybody got out of line a little bit, you know, if we were laughing too much or if my dad was being a little bit cheeky to her, she would say, I feel my big toe twitching. And we all say it now to each other. And what are your, I mean, what do you miss about her on a daily basis most? Just hearing her voice and just knowing that she's there if I want to go and see her. Just just her being here, not being here is really hard. Can you um, describe for me how she fell ill? 
I phoned on the Wednesday morning, I think it was the 15th of April, and she answered the phone. And because my mum had previously had delirium due to um, chest infections and UTIs, I thought she sounded like she had delirium again. She was falling asleep whilst on the phone and I had to keep shouting to try and get her to, to speak. And I thought, oh my God, there's something not right here. So I drove over to her house, but obviously the lockdown was on. I knew I couldn't go in. And I thought, how am I going to assess her without going into the house? And I really didn't think she had COVID because there had only been carers in. Looking back, that was probably silly. So I managed to get her to walk to the, the back door and I stood at the gate and I looked at her. Both my partner and I work, worked in the NHS. So I looked at her and I thought, I'm going to have to phone a GP. She's definitely not right, but still thinking it was delirium. What made you think she wasn't right? Um, because she kept fading away. I made her sit um, at the back door, uh, have a little porch, and I made her sit down and she kept falling asleep while I was trying to speak to her. Kept fading away and I had to keep shouting, Mom, Mom. And I'd seen her in that sort of state before and she'd had to be admitted to hospital quite a few times. So I was actually convinced it was delirium again. So I was absolutely shocked when I found out she actually had COVID. And how did you find that out? Well, the the nurse came in the afternoon. I'd phoned the GP who sent out a district nurse to assess my mum. And I I knew the nurse. So she phoned me to tell me my mum had a temperature of 38.4. And as soon as she told me that, I thought, there's something not right here. That's, That's when I started thinking about COVID. Because she didn't present with your normal symptoms. I didn't see any evidence of a cough. And obviously, I couldn't take her temperature. I couldn't get close enough to her. And so she was admitted to hospital on the doctor's advice, swabbed for COVID. And the next day, the results came back positive. But the very night that she was admitted, I got a phone call from the doctor at Nine Wells to ask me to sign a DNR. Right, I do not resuscitate. Yeah. How did you feel about that? Well, as I say, I work in the health service myself, so it didn't come as any big shock. And having seen many people resuscitated, I didn't think I wanted my mum resuscitated due to the fact that she was pretty severely um, dementing. And I didn't want her to go through that trauma because the outcome's not always predictable after you've been resuscitated. So Mm -hmm. I had discussed it, obviously, with my family because I knew I would get that call. Mm-hmm. And we had decided collectively that we wouldn't ask for resuscitation. Yeah. So you found out that uh, she confirmed positive for COVID-19. Yeah. And w- what happened then? Well, we were told from the hospital that she was doing fine. And uh, she was up and walking about. Of course, we couldn't visit. And trying to get through to the ward on the phone was nearly impossible. Yep, they sort of gave positive feedback and it gave us a bit of hope. We thought, oh, maybe she's going to be okay. And it was only after a couple of days that she stopped eating and drinking. Not that she'd been a fabulous eater beforehand and that sort of rang alarm bells in me as well. And I might be jumping forward a bit, but she was transferred to another hospital for rehab 
and still not eating. And it was in that other hospital they discovered that she had a blocked saliva gland in her mouth, um, which hadn't been detected in the first hospital. And so she was put on massive doses of antibiotics. And they told us that that would change things and that she would start eating again and drinking. And they were hopeful that she would make a recovery. But as I say, we weren't able to go and visit her. We couldn't see her. I know that I could have made a better assessment of her had I seen her, but I wasn't able to. We were able to eventually iPad with her, but by that time she was pretty bad and it was really distressing to have to see her on the iPad. And tell me about your father. What what was what did well, you say to your dad? What had he said before? Well, I'll try and make this brief because I could probably talk all day about how horrendous it's been. But my dad, as I said, is, is 95. Um, because my mum and him were so fit and active and healthy, they've never considered death coming to them. They've never spoken about it to us. They've never discussed funerals, nothing. It just was something that wouldn't happen to them. And I'd had an argument with my dad, when I say argument, both discussion, about three or four months previous to that, to, to this and um, he accused me of saying that him and my mum were old and decrepit. And he asked me, do you think we're old and decrepit? And I said to him, well, I have to be honest. I think you are old. I'm not going to say decrepit. That's not a word I would use, but you are old. So they have never considered themselves to be old. And my dad must have struggled an awful lot looking after my mum before this COVID. And he suffers from depression himself. He's on antidepressants. He's immobile. He, he has really real problems walking. You can imagine a 95-year-old man. And what makes it even worse is he's deaf, really, really deaf. And he didn't even hear my mum's funeral because every place is closed. So we couldn't get him to audiology to get his hearing aids repaired. So we told him that she had um, a urine infection or a chest infection. We weren't sure or constipation, because that's what she's previously been admitted to hospital with. So he, he accepted that. And due to the fact we were getting quite positive feedback from the hospitals at first, we sort of said to him to make him feel better, oh, yeah, she seems to be doing okay. And that, that kept him happy. He was aware of the COVID-19 pandemic, was he? Oh, yeah, yeah. And what yeah, did he say about it? About the actual pandemic, he, he yes. thought it was awful. He thought it was awful and terrible, and he didn't really say too much about it. He knew that we couldn't come into the house due to lockdown. He knew we were wearing masks. He knew why we were waving through windows, but I don't think he ever thought it would affect them personally. I know that his fear was a carer would bring it in, but that I think that was a fear, not really thinking it would ha- actually happen. What did he say about that fear? What did he say about that mm. fear? Um, well, my mum was going to be getting increased care and he said he didn't want any carers coming into the house because they would bring in COVID. And one carer had appeared at the house with no PPE and my dad said to her, why haven't you got PPE on? And she said to him, and I quote, you're bloody lucky you're getting a visit, never mind about PPE. Oh dear. So we've actually put a huge complaint into Dundee um, social social work department and we're awaiting a response to our concerns. Okay, so you, so you haven't actually shared 
the fact that your mother got COVID f- with your father, no. you've saved him no. that. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, because knowing the kind of man he is, and I couldn't even begin to explain to you, it just wouldn't, I would have finished him off. Yeah. It would have finished him off. So, except the fact that she had dementia, but that would have just been too much for him to bear. I think yeah. he would have felt responsible then. Yeah. So tell me, she was in hospital, uh, in the second hospital, and she'd been treated there for the issue with her saliva duct. And what happened then? I think one of the problems, big problem, in the second hospital, they didn't have the iPad at that time. They did eventually get an iPad. So everything was done over the phone. And I don't know if you're aware or not, but you know the nurses and doctors who hadn't actually qualified but were getting to work on the wards. So most of the time we were talking to young doctors who had no experience whatsoever and nurses who weren't qualified but working as healthcare assistants and not no experience really. So we were getting conflicting stories from everybody that we spoke to. And looking back now, the signs were all there, although nobody actually said to us, your mum hasn't got long to go. And it just sort of happened in a couple of days towards the end. What what were they Um, saying to you? um, They were saying to us, yeah, she's talking a bit more today. Yep, she's had a couple of, she's had about five mils. And I thought, five mils? Yep, she chatted. She's waving to us through her window. She was put into um, a side room, allegedly, so that my dad and my sister, they nominated themselves as the two people to go and see my mum because we did think that one Sunday she was going to pass away, so they got in to see her. So therefore, that excluded anyone else seeing her. So I couldn't go. And so I haven't seen my mum since the 15th April. So they they were the nominated people. Um, so, yeah, and the, the, the hospital basically said to us, you may have to look for a nursing home, and we might move her to another ward for rehabilitation. So to me, that didn't sound like somebody who was going away to die, you know, if they were asking us to look for nursing homes, which I wouldn't have wanted her to go into one anyway. Sure. And so talk me through the next the next phase. Well, the next few weeks, because she was in hospital for six to seven weeks, and every day that passed and every phone call, I just thought to myself, she's never going to get out of there. She is never going to get out, because obviously when people stop eating and drinking, well, you know that they're not going to live for that much longer. And I didn't didn't really understand. My my sister nominated herself to be the spokesperson, because from, from my point of view, working in a hospital, I know that they don't like loads of relatives phoning up. They like one person to phone up and cascade the information down to the rest of the family. So um, my sister was the one who phoned. And so her, she was relaying the information to me. And I just, the longer time went on, I just knew that she wasn't going to come out of hospital, basically. And they tried it on. She ended up getting cellulitis on her hand, which we think was from a Venflon. And that's, that's what I mean about not being able to go and see her because I would have recognised instantly what that was on her, her hand. And I did say to my sister, you know, ask them, is it due to a vein flown? And then that, that made me start thinking, maybe she's got sepsis because that happens. Well, what is that, sorry, a vein Oh, the needle in your arm for getting right. fluids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know that 
there's new protocol policy on venflons because you can get sepsis due to obviously the needle going into your vein and introducing infection. So she had that and the thing on the mouth, uh, I can't remember the medical name for it. So she, she she just went through an awful lot. And when we did speak to a consultant, they decided that they wouldn't take any more blood from her because she was too weak. And they started it on subcop fluids. I don't know if you're familiar no. with subcop fluids. So it's, it's not as intrusive as IV fluids. It's a needle in your tummy and it gives you just a slow amount of fluid. So they started her on that and then took her off that. And just, yeah, it was just a slow, gradual, painful deterioration, which was absolutely heartbreaking, not being able to see her. Um, And also for my dad, it was just the most unbearable pressure of my life. Not, it was just, it was horrendous. So, and I don't mean my mum dying. What I mean is just everything connected to that whole awful time. Everything seemed to just be 20 times more difficult than it would have been. What was the worst of it? Not being able to see my mum, not being able to talk to any medical person face to face, having to still keep my dad alive because he can't cook and he can't shop and... I mean, we're we're still doing that now. So having to focus on keeping him okay and at the same time worrying about my mum and also for me having to support both my daughters, it was just the most unbearable mental torture to go through because I couldn't for for one minute let myself be sad or upset or depressed because I had to to stay strong for everyone else. So it was really, that probably was the worst. So how did you find out that your mum had passed? Well, it was my dad's birthday and my daughter's birthday on the 21st of May. And we'd had a phone call the day before to say she wasn't doing that great or we had phoned actually. So by this time, yeah, they had the iPad at this time. And I thought, I'm going to try and speak to her on the iPad. And I phoned them up and I said, I want to speak to my mum. They said she's not able to speak. I said, well, I want to, I want to see her. I want her to hear my voice because I'm not going to be able to see her if she dies. I want her to hear my voice. And they said, hold on a minute. The doctors are just going in to see her. So anyway, I never got to, to see her or let her hear my voice. And she deteriorated quite rapidly. And my sister got a phone call about half past five to say, come to the hospital immediately. Fortunately, my sister had been having in the garden with my dad, who lives close to the hospital. So she just left my dad's house and got that phone call. So she just drove right back to his house, took him out the house in his wheelchair with his slippers on and said, we'll have to go now. Drove down to the hospital and they got there. And I think five minutes later, my mum died. Oh, my word. So, yeah. But they were there with her. They were there, um, yeah, they were there for five minutes, but my sister said it was horrific. Now, I'm, I'm quite familiar with seeing people dying and passing away due to my line of work. Um, my sister hadn't ever seen anything like that before, and I think she was completely traumatised because that's her lasting impression of my mother and, and my poor old dad. They'd been married for over 70 years. <laughs> 
Oh my word. What did your yeah. sis, what did your sister say about it? She she said it was horrific. She was traumatized. I think she still is actually traumatized. And having to having my dad there, who's always been a real man's man, and to see him crying and breaking his heart, I think that made it worse for her. How did you feel the fact that you know you had no goodbye, that your goodbye was stolen? I I felt utterly heartbroken, utterly heartbroken. And if I'd known the last time that I saw her was going to be the last time, I would have made it much more special. But obviously I could never have known that. Um, I felt cheated, robbed, and it just felt so unjust and unfair not to be able to say goodbye to a woman who'd done so much for me. I mean, presumably they could have, you know, come back to you when the doctors had gone and then you could have spoken to her there was just no way they were they were they were budging I think by that time you know it was probably too late to speak to her I just as I say I just wanted her to hear my voice because I know that hearing is one of the last things to go yeah so I just wanted her to hear me and I, I thought she she maybe wonders why why I've not been to see her and I just wanted to explain that, you know, it's not because I don't want to see you. It's just that I'm not allowed to. Sure. And so I, I suppose I wanted to comfort her. When was the last time you saw her? What was what what was said? What what happened? And that was the day that I went up when I phoned her and she was sure. unwell, when I thought she had delirium. That was the last time that I actually saw her. Um, yeah. And I wasn't able to hug her then or go into the house or hold her hand. I used to always sit and hold her hand. I've actually got a picture of me and her, just her hands together. And um, That's lovely, thank you. Yeah, so I used to just sit and hold her hand and she used to look at me and say, I love you. So tell me, obviously she passed, and was was there a funeral? Were you able to give her a funeral? What What happened then? Yeah, we were able to give her a very small funeral. It was a maximum of 10 people to attend. Obviously, um, we were all in separate households. So my daughter, who lives in Birmingham, couldn't come up due to lockdown rules in Scotland. We weren't allowed to travel more than five miles at that time. Um, There would be nowhere for my daughter to stay. We weren't allowed to stay overnight in people's houses. We still aren't at this moment in time. My youngest daughter doesn't live with me either and her partner has had a kidney transplant. So she's living with a shielded person. So we had to do all communication like this on Zoom and it was quite difficult really because my sister and I obviously had to discuss everything. Uh, The humanist who conducted the funeral was marvellous. We had a Zoom call with her and the undertaker was marvellous. I can't fault any of them. They were really good and because we thought it'd be too traumatic for my dad to follow the the car with the funeral in it on the day of the funeral my sister and I in separate cars we followed the, the, the coffin from a part of Dundee to another part so we followed it the day before so it was just so incredibly incredibly difficult people were wearing masks um, at the funeral, there was only maybe nine people there. My dad was just like a shell of his former self. It was just horrific. 
and not being able to comfort each other. Even after the funeral, we were still in really strong lockdown, but we had to go back and sit in my dad's garden and it was a cold day. We couldn't take the chance of going into the house after being at a funeral and thinking maybe somebody had COVID. So we had to sit outside with this 95-year-old man who'd just been at his wife's funeral. And it was just like a, it just didn't feel real. And what keeps you awake at night? Oh, God, just worrying about my dad, thinking about my mum. Uh, thinking about the rest of my family, how it's affected them. Just wishing that, wishing most of the time I, I had planned on asking the carers not to come in because I work with people with dementia. And I uh, one day at work when we were in lockdown and we were all wearing masks, I thought, why? what am I doing here? I should be looking after my own parents, not someone else's. And I actually handed my notice in the day my mum was taken into hospital because I was going to tell the carers not to come back and I was going to go and look after them and isolate from everybody else except them. So I handed my notice in in the morning. So that keeps me awake thinking I should have done it sooner. I should have done it sooner. I shouldn't have waited. Realising that there's nothing I can do about it now, but I just wish I'd acted sooner. And what emotions are you left with? Sadness, despair, grief, worry, nothing very, nothing very happy. I can sometimes be happy if we talk about my mum and some of the happier things, some of the, the good times, but mostly I feel sad, just feel really sad. And how do you feel the government has handled the pandemic? Well... I think it's been a dreadful lack of PPE. I think that's been absolutely appalling. I don't think the message was sent out quick enough and strongly enough as to how dangerous this was. And I don't think that carers going into people's houses were fully informed about how bad it was. I don't think they were given adequate PPE in time. They only started wearing PPE, I think, on the 6th of April that's when I started wearing it at work and uh, my sister had texted me to say the carers were now wearing PPE. So lockdown happened on the 23rd of March. So that was two weeks after lockdown that the carers started wearing PPE. So I feel that was a, a big concern. And what, what would you like to see happen now? I'd like care homes to have a complete reshuffle. I'd like the care of elderly people to change dramatically, but then that's not a new thought for me. I've always thought this due to working with older people. I think that um, the way they're looked after is pretty bad. Uh, and I don't mean people being bad to them. I mean the, the situation they're in, stuck in a hospital, never getting outside, never getting fresh air, never getting sunlight, never going anywhere, no stimulation. I just feel the end of people's lives they should be treated in a more dignified manner the whole care system should change and maybe follow the, the Dutch model of having a dementia village as opposed to putting people into care homes, packing them in like sardines. Sounds like a nice and idea. So that's, what like. that's what I would like to see happen. And 
What's the one thing that you wish people understood? I just wish people understood how utterly awful it is to have lost a loved person, a loved one, under the circumstances, the incredible, incredible difficulties that we have faced. And I think, yeah, just that I'd just like people to actually understand how awful it's been for us as a family and just torturous trying to deal with it with very limited support because if my dad didn't have us, he would have had nobody. He would have been dead as well because he's not received a call from his GP. There's nobody, nobody phoned up and asked how he is, how he's doing. So it's just been a complete shambles from that point of view. Okay, Eileen, thank you very much for sharing your story very very brave thank you thank you very much thank you